Hey, everybody. We are absolutely privileged to have with us on today a former Davis Cup captain, the 1996 U.S. Olympic coach. He reached a career high, number 34 in singles and number four in doubles. Please welcome to the pod, captain and coach Tom Gullickson. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Hey, David. It's absolutely my pleasure to join you and, uh, and all your listeners. I really appreciate it. You have a world of experiences. And kind of before we get uh, into talking about those experiences, give us a quick update on, on what's going on now. We know you retired from the USTA player development just a couple of years ago, 2017. Um, now you're doing some stuff in the in the Chicagoland area. Catch everybody up on what you've been doing. Yes, uh, I retired uh, from USTA player development in, uh, in June of 2017 and moved up to Chicago with my wife, Sean Considine, and currently I'm uh, doing some consulting and coaching at Midtown Athletic Club, which is about a mile from our house. We live in Roscoe Village, so uh, uh, I've enjoyed my relationship there at Midtown and working with uh, the, the juniors there and also just some of the adults as well. You can't get the coaching out of your blood. It's, it's, it's obviously part of you, and even if you're retired, you're, you're, you're not fully retired because you're still doing what you love. No, I don't. I don't think retirement's such a great concept. I, I uh, like keeping myself busy, and I, I think between the eleven years that, that Timmy and I played on the tour, and then the thirty years I coached on the tour, you know, so having you know forty-one years of experience playing and coaching at the highest levels of the game, you know, I certainly want to share that with uh, all the all the young players who are aspiring to to play great Division One college tennis or for the lucky ones that might have enough talent and, and discipline to reach the tour level. I, I really enjoy, you know, helping players kind of reach their full potential, what, you know, whatever that may look like. Awesome, awesome. And I know everybody is so lucky to, to have you on the court with them. So let's kind of, before we go into all the incredible experiences You've had. Let's go way back, and you know uh, people know about your twin, your twin brother, Tim. How did you and Tim get get started in the sport? Well, it was pretty simple. Uh, we we were born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and lived in La Crosse until we were in seventh grade, and then moved up to a kind of a suburb of La Crosse called Onalaska, Wisconsin. But we lived literally about 30 steps. We lived right across the street from the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse. So one of those colleges in that UW system up there. And there was eight tennis courts and a practice wall, 30 steps out our front door. And, you know, there was about a 30-foot high fence around the courts. And when Tim and I were five years old and we were bringing a lot of energy and my mother was probably pulling her hair out, she looked across the street in the summer and saw all these kids in a summer recreation program playing tennis. And she thought, oh, that might be a good outlet for my boys. Maybe I'll drag them over there and they can chase balls for the kids in the program if they're not too young to actually start, if they're too young to start playing. And, uh, you know, we picked up a racket when we were five years old, and we absolutely fell in love with the sport. And, you know, by the time we were eight years old, we were, we were quite good, you know, playing with each other every day. And uh, we would play five, six hours every day in the summer, and we would play with adults. We would play with older kids. We would play with each other. And um, it was interesting, you know, when you – start playing on the tour, they always ask you, well, when did you turn pro, you know? And my story was pretty simple. When Tim and I were eight, we were quite good when we were eight years old. And two doors down from us on Pine Street in La Crosse, Wisconsin, there was like a three-story house with about eight guys living in, eight college guys. And every Friday afternoon, uh, there would be a uh, PE class, a tennis PE class that would end about three o'clock, 
and a lot of the guys in the in the PE class would stay on to just practice. And uh, our next door neighbors probably needed a little beer drinking money for the weekend, so they called us Timcom because they couldn't tell us apart. Right. And they said, hey, Timcom, let's go over uh, across the street and see if we can hustle up a doubles game. So they would take us, you know, to the tennis courts, and we were little guys. We were really small, and they would pick out the two biggest PE majors there on the tennis court, and they would say, hey, I bet my two little buddies here can beat you two guys in doubles. And um, they would laugh. They would look at us and just laugh, and then we would play them, and we always won, always won. Right. And they would win whatever money they won, they bet, and they would give us a quarter apiece, and we would take the quarter apiece and ride our bikes down to the ice cream store and grab a, a 25 cent ice cream cone. So that's basically, you know, when we turned pro when we were about eight years old. <laughs> right. So, kind of continuing on that spectrum, I and mean, we know you guys played at, at Northern Illinois, um, had good college experience there. When you actually turned pro, it was an interesting story. You guys didn't go pro right from college. You actually were both teaching, and I think Tim may have been teaching a little bit before you, and then he started playing some professional events and doing well, and you kind of looked at that and said, okay, maybe I have a shot at that. Is that kind of an accurate description of how you guys got rolling professionally? Yeah, that is accurate. Yeah, Tim, after we, we graduated from NIU in 73, I actually coached the college team and that spring, and uh, which were all my friends from the team, and Tim moved to Dayton, Ohio, and John Wittlinger's sister, Wendy Wittlinger, uh, was the director of tennis at, at a club in, in the Dayton, Ohio area, Kettering Tennis Center, and Timmy started coaching, you know, at the Kettering Tennis Center. He had, you know, a tour player like Beth Hurt. He was Beth Hurst coach when she was about 10 years old and she ended up going on being a very successful tour player and uh, Tim started winning like all the all the pro little teaching pro tournaments in the in the Dayton Cincinnati area those little prize money tournaments on the weekend and, and uh, he met a gentleman by the name Hank Jungle who at the time uh, was ranked number one or two in the country in the 35 and over, and he had played number one at Tulane. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So Hank, you know, quickly, you know, he was winning all the tournaments before, before Tim showed up, and then Tim beat him and everybody else. And he, he was like, Tim, you're, you know, he kind of took Tim under his wing, and he said, listen, you're way too talented as a tennis player and athlete to be teaching at this time. You need to try the tour. So Hank said, I will coach you, and I'll sponsor you, and I'll, I'll find some sponsors for you, and, and uh, we'll give the tour a shot, because you're way too good not to at least try. So in 75, you know, Tim quit his teaching job at the Kettering Tennis Center, and in one year, went from a teaching pro uh, to top 100 in the world on the ATP Tour, which is unheard of. Unprecedented. Yeah, not sure that's ever happened uh, <laughs> again. That's happened before or since. Right. And I was, after the spring where I had coached the NIU team, I got a job at, in Crystal Lake at the Racket Club in Crystal Lake, Illinois, and uh, on Route 31. And I was winning virtually all the tournaments in the Midwest. You know, all the Chicago area, teaching pro tournaments, you know, pretty much everything I played, I would win the singles. And Dick Johnson from Rockford, Illinois, Dick and I would win the doubles. We won like 11 tournaments in a row. And uh, including, we beat Labor and Emerson in an exhibition one time in Rockford, Illinois, which was, which was pretty fun. Wow. And especially because Labor was my idol, you know, growing up. You and a lot of others. You and a lot of others. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, you know, I'm watching Tim have all this great success. And uh, I was probably teaching 50, 60 hours a week in Crystal Lake. That was right at the, you know, middle of the tennis boom, you know, from 74 to 76. And I'm like, 
know, if, if, he, if he could be top 100 in the world, I, I certainly could do that. And my, my wife uh, was teaching school in the, in the area, and we had saved up, you know, in about a year and a half of marriage, some good money to put on a down payment on a home. And I said, you know, I'd really like to take this money and try the tour. And so I sponsored myself on the tour, and I gave it two years. So I quit my teaching job in May of 76, and by May of 77, I was top 50 in the world. Crazy. Now, uh, now the listeners, the listeners know this, but <laughs> just when Tom said he's better looking than Tim, Tom and Tim are identical twins. So for the few listeners that may not know that, that was kind of an inside, uh, inside joke there. <laughs> So you, I mean, obviously, you go pro, you have big-time success, you won, you, you won like 16 top-level top doubles titles, 10 of them with your brother, uh, including being runners-up, 1983 Wimbledon, losing to two, you know, pretty decent guys who had decent uh, doubles careers, and John McEnroe and Peter Fleming, <laughs> and you won the mixed doubles... You won the mixed doubles yeah. titles at, in '84 with Manuela Maleva. Obviously, those are those are some of your highlights. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, playing on tour and some of the some of the things that you really really enjoyed. Maybe some of the things you didn't really enjoy about it. Well, I think I kind of enjoyed everything. Uh, the way Tim and I looked at it was everything was a bonus because this was like you had mentioned previously, David. This was something unprecedented and never uh, had been accomplished before to go from a teaching pro to a successful and long playing career. So, uh, um, you know, Tim and I enjoyed pretty much every aspect of the tour, and, and we were very lucky when we first came on the tour to have unbelievable mentors. I mean, I was talking about it this morning with some friends, when Tim and I started, you know, the guys, American players we really looked up to were like Marty Reeson, Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe, Tom Gorman, you know, all great players, you know, you know and uh, Davis Cup players and Grand Slam champions, and they had no reason to really be nice with Tim and I. We were essentially, when the new guys are coming on the tour, they're essentially trying to take the job from the older guys. Right. So, and uh, they couldn't have been nicer. They couldn't have been more welcoming. So I think the fact that, that Tim and I, you know, had such great kind of mentors when we came on the tour, and, you know, American tennis was, was, was dominating the world. In 1979, then Brother Tim uh, finished the, war, the, the end of the year, ranked 18 on the ATP tour, and he was 11 in the U.S. <laughs> That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. That's a crazy stat. And I'm sure the USTA uh, would love it if we had 11 men in the top 18 in the world. That's crazy. I mean, you had the late 80s, early 90s where you had guys, Pete, Andre, and we're going to get to them in a little bit. Pete, Andre, Chang, Courier, you got Todd Martin in there, and then a little later... Yeah, well, wow. Uh, substantially a little later, Andy Roddick, but eleven of the top eighteen—that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we and and the brand of American tennis was 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 pretty unique. It was very aggressive players, good athletes, great competitors, playing aggressive, taking it to your opponent. That was kind of our brand. You know, that was. This is an American. When you play an American, this is kind of what's coming at you, you know. And for quite a while, we kind of lost our brand. We lost our identity as a tennis playing nation. Yeah, um, and we're gonna. <laughs> we're going to talk about that a little bit later uh, in the podcast, but very, very um, true. And again, it's crazy when you have top 11 of the, uh, you know, 11 of the top 18. And then we had that again, late eighties, early nineties. I want to kind of talk about your transition into coaching Um, after your, your awesome career was done. How did you get into coaching? Was that right away after you were done or did you take any time off? Well, yeah, it was kind of a natural, transition for, for both Tim and myself. Um, kind of toward the end of our playing
playing career. You know, Timmy played 12 years because, as he loved to tell everybody, he was the pathfinder. He kind of found the path for me. He wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. And I must say, I have to give him 100% credit for that. He's, he was 100% correct. So, uh, and toward the end of our playing careers, since we had both done, you know, a lot of teaching and coaching before we went on the tour, when we used to do clinics and pro-amps, you know, on the tour level, all the guys on the tour would say, hey, I want to be on Gully Sport because he'll organize everything. He'll make it fun for the players and we'll have a great time and he'll do all the work. I won't have to do anything. So, you know, we, Timmy and I did a ton of like corporate outings for like IBM, Philip Morse, uh, you name it, ICI. And, and we really, you know, did a ton of those corporate outings, even kind of in our last two or three years on the tour, you know, kind of full well knowing that at some point we needed to transition from uh, playing to the next phase of our, our life and career. So, um, yeah, and then, so 86, I uh, played the U.S. Open and lost the third round on an overrule on match point. You know, a bunch of friends of mine from Florida came up to watch the Open and they thought they were going to go to the theater and do all the New York things. I won my first match against Greg Holmes, 7-6 in the fifth in four hours and 40 minutes. Wow. I, I beat 10-seated Andres Gomez from down two sets, 6-4 in the fifth in four hours and 30 minutes. And in my third round match on a Saturday night slash Sunday morning on Grandstand Court, I lost to Matt Anger 6-4 in the fifth on an overrule at that point. Unbelievable. You still haven't spoken to that, that linesman since. Well, uh, her name was Joyce Johnson from Indianapolis, Indiana, and we have one thing in common. That was the last point in my career and the last point in her career. <laughs> Wow. About 1 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you know, third round, you know, to get to the fourth round of the Open. Oh. And I was actually, you know, turning 30, 35 that year. And at the time, you know, they had a very kind of lucrative senior tour that Prudential Beach sponsored. And so the, the following year, in, in the first four months of 87, I actually coached Brad Gilbert, so from January to the to the Lipton tournament in Miami, so the first four months of the year I coached Brad Gilbert, and then I kind of took a year off from, from like coaching. You know, after you know, then I just played on the thirty five and over tour, and they at the time at the U.S. Open in Wimbledon, they had a thirty five and over single, so I won. Wimbledon in the 35 and over singles like four straight years and I won the U.S. Open 35 and over singles like three straight years and and Tim and I at one point on the on the on the Prudential Beach Tour we won like 23 tournaments in a row because you, know, you know I'm coaching like Todd Martin and all these guys and, and Timmy's coaching like Sampras and and uh, we're hitting ball to these guys every day and then we're playing guys you know 35 and over the ball looked like a basketball right we had a lot of fun like playing on that 35 and over tour we'd all bring our golf clubs and we play some golf and uh, play our tennis and do a lot of the corporate stuff that that came with it you know the teaching and then uh my first coaching job other than working with Brad for the first four months of 87 uh, when the first USTA player development program started in 1988 you know Stan Smith was the first director of coaching and I was one of the first four national coaches in that program along with Nick Saviano, Lynn Raleigh and Benny Stim and my specific uh, uh, job with USTA was I was in charge of the touring pro program, the young pros for men and women. You had a lot to work with. You got in at a good time. <laughs> yeah, I hired the coaches for the women's side, and I actually. 
college tennis, you know, to the pros. Yep, and you had Grand Slam champions in there, which was an amazing group of people. And, uh, you know, guys like, again, we've said before, Todd Martin, Jennifer Capriotti, um, Michael Chang, Pete Sampras, Jim Currier. Um, you were the Davis Cup captain from 1994 to 1999. You won it in 95, runner-up in 97. You were the Olymp- uh, U.S. Olympic coach in Atlanta in 1996, Guiding, uh, y'all know Andre won the Olympic gold medal there. I want to kind of open it up to you and uh, give give the listeners, if you can, you know, one or two bullet points of of guys like Jim and Pete and Andre and Jennifer and Todd, guys that you guys and girls that you were close with. Just um, you know, one or two bullet points on each, what you really really liked and what was something sensational about each of them. Yep, I remember it. She served for it a couple times, too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, served at 5-4 and 6-5. I remember that match vividly, and I was so hoping she'd pull it out. Yeah, and, and uh, you, know, that was, you know, Jennifer was very precocious. She was the absolute. She had so much energy. She was such a vivacious young lady. Uh she was an incredible ball striker and an unbelievable uh, return of serve. And, you know, I really worked a lot on her serve because she was breaking serve like six or seven times out of ten. She was breaking serve more than 50% of the time. So, uh, you know, I, I tried to give her kind of more of a men's mentality on serving. Like, let's hold serve every time. Jennifer, imagine how much pressure these girls are going to feel if you kind of develop your first serve a little more, get a little more strength and variety on your second serve, you start throwing down, you know, holes that love the 15, you're going to be putting unbelievable amount of pressure on these girls, you know, and, you know, she was great, and I really enjoyed working with Jennifer, um, and so I, I worked with Jennifer for two years, and that was kind of courtesy of the USTA, I was the USTA had hired me for 26 weeks a year because that was when I was still playing a lot of those 35 and over events, so I didn't want to coach full-time, but, you know, the USTA had, had given my 26 weeks to the Capriottis for two years. So I cursed Coach Jennifer as part of the USTA program. Um, her year was, was great. You know, I, I, his parents had a condominium in uh, St. Augustine Beach and you know I had a place in Palm Coast, Florida so St. Augustine Beach is about 20-25 minutes north so a young Jim Courier you know when he would come visit his uh, parents at their condo there in Florida he would call me I was always impressed with Jim's discipline Tom you're, you're sounding a little bit muffled if you can talk a little bit more into the phone that'd be awesome Agassi ended up winning. 
him out for 10 days, you know, and to get him ready for Wimbledon. And meanwhile, Timmy's, you know, working Sanford South, not there, but, you know, town at Saddlebrook. And uh, they ended up playing in the final that year. Right. And Curry, Currier won the first set. He was up a mini break in the second set tiebreaker. And Sampras came back to win that tiebreaker. Then he won in four sets. So that was an interesting time. And, you know, I had trained Currier on the grass. And, and then he was over there with his coach, Jose Higueras, you know. Right. And, uh, and that was Pete's first Wimbledon title, beating Jim in, in that four set match. Yeah, that, those are these are great stories. What about can you can you give us a little bit about Atlanta in 1996 with Andre? I know Brad was there with him, but but you were the you were the Olympic coach. Talk a little bit about your experiences uh, with that. That was an amazing you know uh, experience for me and my family. And and you know Billie Jean King was the women's uh, Olympic coach, so I spent a lot of time with with Billie Jean, which is always a real treat for me because she's a great lady and obviously goes without saying what she's done for tennis. So, yeah, we had a pretty good run that year with Lindsay Davenport uh, beating uh, Arantxa Sanchez for a gold medal. And I think Mary Jo and Gigi Fernandez won the doubles, so the women won two golds. And then, you know, Agassi won his gold medal over Sergi Bruguera in the final. Yep. It was interesting, you know, when you're coaching, like, top players, like, best players in the world, a lot of people in our listening audience, they'll think, you must give them some unbelievably complex advice. And, you know, I always operated under the KISS method, you know, keep it simple, silly, you know. And uh, I had watched Andre play uh, on the summer hardcore uh, circuit leading up to the Olympics, and, and frankly, he wasn't playing well wasn't playing well at all and you know a lot of times he'd get a kind of a weak second serve and guy would jump on the return and he wouldn't even run for the ball he'd just kind of watch it right if you look at if you look at Andre's results in 1996 they were not good leading into that and you know he did have uh, Olympic history in his family his dad boxed for Iran in the 48 and 52 Olympics and then you know Andre always you know, took great pride in representing the U.S. in Davis Cup. He was a great Davis Cup player, and he really wanted to win that gold medal. I mean, he was there in Atlanta for one reason, that was to win the gold medal. And, you know, Brad was there, who I got along with really well, so it was great to have Brad there as well. But in uh, one of the moments there, I I told uh, Andre, I said, listen, Andre, like three things, three things this week at the Olympics. Number one, run for every ball. I don't want you to stop running until the ball hits the back fence, uh, you know, or it bounces twice. Number two, keep your keep your poise and your composure no matter what. And number three, compete for every point because he. He used to have a lot of throwaway points. If he was down 40 love on the guy's serve, he would just slap a return, you know, like it happened in the back fence or something. You know, so mentally he would go in and out of the matches a lot and kind of put more importance on some points than others, you know. And I said, yeah, so three things. You know, run for every ball, compete for every point, and keep your poise and your composure no matter what. And, you know, those are things under your control. So control the controllable. Second round, he's playing uh, the Italian player Andre Gadenzi, who was like Thomas Muster's like practice partner and top twenty in the world. He was down six two three zero, and he comes back to win in three sets. And the biggest match he played was in the quarterfinal, playing the very talented South African Wayne Ferreira, who was ranked in the top of the world at the time, and played great on hard courts. Wayne Pereira served for the match in the quarter at 5-4 in the third. And Andre had been broken at 4-all in the third. And for the complete changeover, he was standing next to the umpire, arguing with the umpire and going toe-to-toe with the umpire over something. And 
this is this is toast. He's he's done. Ferrer's gonna serve this match out. And Andre breaks, holds, and breaks to win the match seven five in the third, and then <laughs> beats uh, Leander Pace in the semi. And then in the final, he you know final was best of five sets. Played Sergi Bruguera, who was obviously a great clay court player, winning the French Open like three times. But uh, as a hard courts, Andre dominated him with his his serve. If his Bruguera had the extreme Western grip on his forehand, if you serve hard to his forehand, he would just chip it back with a continental grip. So Andre would serve a lot to his forehand. He'd chip it back, and then Andre would be right on top of the baseline, just dominating. Yeah, he'd eat that up. He would eat that up all day. Yeah, he won that. He won that match like six two six one six one, and I've never seen a guy, you know, happier in my life to, to win that gold medal. I mean, I think he wore it for a couple of days without taking it off. That's awesome. Now he always loved the team. He always loved the team environment, and even in the years he was struggling, like we said, '96, he didn't have a great year. He won the gold. Davis Cup, even during those years when he wasn't that good, he would always step it up in Davis Cup. There was something about him, and and he loved the team atmosphere. Yeah, he did. He was a great team guy, and he loved having uh, that support. You know, tennis is a lonely sport. You know, when you're out there, kind of on your own, uh, and things aren't going well, uh, there's really, you know, nowhere to hide. You've got to keep playing, and uh, you've got to figure it out yourself. Um, and in a kind of a team environment with your teammates and, and a coach on the court, you know, you can kind of help them figure out some things. You know, it's interesting. When I was captain, I had three number ones, Courier, Sampras, Agassi, a number two, and Michael Chang, a number four, and Todd Martin, a number seven or eight, and Malibia, Washington, and then a slew of top number one doubles players like Richie Renenberg, Jared Palmer, Alex O'Brien, Rick Leach. You know, I had a plethora of very, very good doubles players as well. Uh, so, but, you know, they were all, on Thursday night, I would always sit down with the two singles players uh, after dinner Thursday night and kind of go over a game plan, uh, what they were going to do in their singles match on Friday. And, you know, the first day of Davis Cup on a Friday, the number one player from one country plays the number two player on the other country. And that way on Sunday, on the reverse, on the reverse thing on Sunday, you know, the two number one players play the first match. That's kind of how they liked it. They want the two number ones really to decide the tie if it's, you know, 2-1 either way and the match is still alive. So I would sit down with the players and, you know, it was really interesting because they all have different styles of play, they have different practice habits, they have different mindsets, but, but all of them, uh, other than probably Chang, certainly Courier, Sampras, and Agassi all would say, hey, Gully, with all due respect to this other guy's game, I don't really care. I'm going to go out, I'm going to establish my game and my competitive spirit and will over my opponent, and I'm going to make him adjust to me. And you know what? If I need to adjust my game you know, during the match, you know, Captain, you can help me help me make those adjustments. And that's what I want from you, but I'm just going to go out there and do my thing. And, and to me, that's the champion's mentality. You, you know your game, you go out, this is plan A for me. I'm going to go out and I'm going to impose my game and my competitive will on my opponent. And then if we need to adjust, we'll make adjustments. So, so was, great. Uh, I, learned, I learned a lot from all the great champions. I mean, I don't think any coach in the history of tennis has had the living laboratory of great champions to work with that I did from 94 to 99. No, it was incredible. It was incredible. Your timing with, with, with doing that was absolutely, it, it was the best yeah. in U.S. tennis. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, I want, it was a real privilege and a real honor to, to, to be the winning Davis Cup captain.
and had the winning Olympic coach. Great. It was a lot of fun. You know, we, we talked a little bit about these two guys and Jim Currier and Pete Sampras, and then we've also talked earlier about your brother. And your brother, mm-hmm. gosh, he, he passed away, what is it now, over uh, over 20, yeah, over 20 90, years, 23 years? Maybe? 96, yeah, 96, yeah. 96, May of 96, he passed away. And we, we know how close you are with, with your brother, Tim, and... I know you still think about him every single day. We were talking a lot prep-wise. You'd mentioned that, which doesn't surprise me at all. There was a match, and, and most people remember, the 1995 Australian Open match between Jim Currier and Pete Sampras. And you and your brother, your brother was coaching Pete, um, and he was, he was struggling, obviously, um, with his health. And both you and your brother were, were, were close with Jim and Pete. And, and Jim goes up two sets to love, and Pete, you see this on ESPN Classic. You've seen this on any YouTube video. Pete completely loses it. And when I mean loses it, I mean emotionally. And with you knowing both Jim and Pete, um, obviously knowing what your brother's going through, um, what was your perspective seeing Pete's reaction to that? And Pete eventually goes on and wins that match in five sets. I wanted to you know, we always hear what, what it meant to Pete. We were curious to, to hear your perspective and what you what was going on in your mind seeing this. Yeah, the, the backstory to that was uh, right before Tim had had a couple of episodes. He had the first episode in Stockholm, Sweden, where he had passed out in his hotel room and hit his face on a plate glass table and he had 50-some stitches. And unfortunately, they never checked his brain. They only checked his heart. And, you know, like a lot of elite athletes, Tim had a little bit of an enlarged heart, you know, which is very common in world-class athletes. And then six weeks later, it, you know, Tim was with Pete at the uh, ATP final in Germany, and he had another episode in his hotel room talking to his wife, Rosemary, uh, she uh, he started like garbling his words, and before she became a lawyer, she was an intensive care nurse, so she immediately knew something was happening. So she immediately hung up the phone and called the hotel and said, "My husband's having a, having an episode in room whatever. You need to go up there right away." And sure enough, he was having a an episode in Germany. And once again, unfortunately, they never checked the brain, which to me is pretty incredible. And uh, and so fast forward to you know, six to eight weeks later, we're in uh, Melbourne. You know, I'm there as Davis Cup captain. I went to all the all the big events. And uh, Timmy, I was in the locker room with Timmy right before Pete's second round match, and Timmy had a, a seizure right in the locker room. And you know, fortunately. The uh, hospital was only literally five minutes away from Melbourne Park, so I went uh, in an ambulance with Tim to the hospital, and, uh, you know, the uh, attending physician there, you know, they had taken some MRIs of his brain, and, you know, he showed me, you know, the MRIs, and, and, you know, it was pretty clear that he had four brain tumors. And uh, obviously, you know, a very difficult uh, diagnosis. And uh, so I actually stayed with him in the uh, hospital for like three days. I, I slept at the hospital, you know, in his room and, you know, trying to process all this. And uh, then we scheduled a flight. You know, and the doctor said, listen, we need to get him back to Chicago, and he needs to do a biopsy. You know, somebody needs to do a biopsy, you know, at Northwestern or Rush or somewhere. They need to do a biopsy of one of these, uh, one of these, you know, that looks like tumors, you know, to see exactly what it is. So, they, and like the last night we were there, we had scheduled the flight back to Chicago, and I was going to take them back home as they were Tim and Rosemary were living in Wheaton, Illinois, a northwest a north, a suburb of Chicago 
western suburb, I guess. And uh, uh, they uh, they told me, you know, well, Tim, you know, we've really medicated Tim enough where the seizure is pretty much impossible. So he's been in the hospital here for three or four days. Why don't you take him out? And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of the players, you know, including Pete, have been, a lot of players and coaches have been coming by and I can show support of Tim. And uh, so the last night, you know, we went out to dinner and Pete and Jim came to the dinner. Bob Martin came, a bunch of coaches came, Ian Hamilton, my friend from Nike, was running Nike tennis. He came. We had about 10 people there and uh, all just wanted to be there to support Tim, and including Jim and Pete, who were actually playing the next day. And uh, so that next morning, uh, Tim and I get on a flight from Melbourne back to Chicago and and these guys are playing that match. And obviously, you know, Pete's really upset. You know, he knows that Tim has gotten this really difficult diagnosis. And uh, he's down two sets and just is a wreck, you know. And then someone in the crowd yelled, you know, hey, win it for your coach. And that's when he started crying and, you know, really emotional and just completely lost it. And, and Courier, who had obviously been at dinner the night before, uh, walked up to the net and very sincerely, I might add, that say, Pete, if we can't finish this match, if you can't finish this match today, I understand well, we can finish it tomorrow. And he, he, Jim was 100% sincere with that comment. And he kind of took it as, you know, kind of that he was kind of you know, kind of making fun of them and, and not sincere. So Pete just kind of got pissed. And he just, you know, through the tears, he started, you know, hitting aces and hitting forehand winners and volley winners. And he lifted his level, you know, you know, 10 times and ended up, like you said, winning that match in five sets. And then going on to the final where he lost to Agassiz. And, you know, he played Agassi in five Grand Slam finals, and that's the only one Agassi won. Right. Agassi beat him in the finals that year. But that's, that's the whole story. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty emotional time for, for everyone, really. And, you know, all the, all the players and all the coaches loved him, so everybody was very, very supportive yeah. of him. Yeah. And it was, uh, I appreciate you saying about Jim's comment, because Jim absolutely, you know, what was sincere about it, and there was some talk about it that it was kind of like a joke, and that's not the case at all. So I appreciate you clarifying clarifying that for, for everyone as well. Um, I want to sh- thank you. 100% yeah. sincere. Yeah, I, I want to thank you for, for sharing that, because um, I know obviously yeah. it's extremely personal. <laughs> Um, yeah. personal to you and I, I appreciate you kind of sharing what, what all that meant um, we've, been, we've been going for about 45 minutes um, before I let you go I was just um, I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on the current crop of players you know the guys old Palka, Fritz, TFO on the women's side Danielle Collins you got Sophia Kennan um, doing very well along with obviously Madison Keys and Sloan um, you got young Coco Goff you know, you even though you retired two Amanda, years ago. Amanda, don't forget Amanda Anna Samova. exactly. I mean, there's I didn't name, I didn't name everyone. We got a really good crop of, of of guys and girls. And even though you retired two years ago, you were working with them at a critical stage of their young development. So um, before we go, you just want to give a couple thoughts on, on people that that maybe we should uh, keep an extra keep an extra eye on. Yeah, I think. You know, our next-gen Americans, uh, you mentioned most of them, you know, TFO, Fritz, Opelka, Tommy Paul, it's kind of come late to the party, but he's making some progress finally. Um, yeah, these are next-gen Americans, you know, uh, I 
How tall was he? How how tall was he at like ten years old? <laughs> Francis had that great run in Australia, also had a good run in, in Miami. I think it's, I've, and I've, I've had these conversations with a lot of people, like people people want the consistent results week in and week out, whereas if TFO makes a quarterfinal run in Australia, well, why isn't he making the quarters and semis of every tournament week in and week out? And the depth in today's game is so deep that all these guys outside really the top three, they're all so good that it's really hard to have that consistency week in and week out because they're all beating each other up. So I think patience is key with all of these guys. Well, but it's also kind of having very professional habits because what happens, uh, David, when you go up the food chain and you play higher, higher, higher levels of competition, now you're on the ATP Tour playing in, in the Master Series events playing in the Grand Slam, so you're playing at the highest level of the game. So what happens is the margin between winning and losing is very, very small. Razor thin. Razor thin. What does that mean for PFO and Fritz and all these guys? It means, very simply, being professional, uh, doing the little things every day, you know, that, that make you professional, that make you prepared for every event. You know, TFO's lost 10 first rounds this year. And, and you know, that's not acceptable to me because Francis, I mean, Francis has got a world of talent that, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. <laughs> you, have to, you have to have that consistent professional preparation. And, you know, these guys are young. They're distracted by other things. There's a lot of money in the game now. You know, if you lose first round of the U.S. Open this year, you're going to get a check for 58 grand. You're losing first round in the singles. 1982, I made made the quarters of the singles, and Timmy and I made the semis of the doubles. I got a check for 16 grand. Yeah, totally when different. I won, the, when I won the mix in '84. I got a check for eight thousand dollars for winning the mixed doubles. Totally different world. Yeah. So it's a different world, but. Uh, 
professionalism, the discipline, you know, and the preparation that, that can make the difference between winning and losing. Yeah. No, I appreciate you, sh- you sharing your expertise. Uh, not only that, but I um, appreciate you taking the time for doing this. Uh, uh, David, my pleasure to join you. The dog, the dog is ready for this to end, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who lets the dog down? All right, so go take the dog, go take the dog for a walk. Uh, and, Tom, I, I greatly appreciate everything uh, you had to offer today. Uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. There you have it. Absolute privilege to have someone like Tom Gullickson with a world of experiences sharing um, his experiences with his players and, and also sharing some pretty personal uh, stuff with, with his twin brother, the late Tim Gullickson. I hope you appreciated that. Again, follow Bielenson Tennis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you got these podcasts on iTunes, Google Play. Appreciate you listening and stay tuned for another podcast guest soon. Thank you.